0: From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media.
1: I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. On Wednesday morning, NBC reported that in July, President Trump had expressed a desire for a nearly tenfold increase in the U.S. nuclear arsenal. According to NBC's unnamed sources, the president had seen a chart showing the country's nuclear stockpile was at its peak in the late 1960s, in the heart of the Cold War, and he wanted to rebuild it. Some of his highest-ranking national security leaders were taken aback, so much so that after the meeting, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson reportedly called Trump a moron. In response, Trump took to Twitter to express his outrage, not at his Secretary of State's insubordination, but at the media outlet that reported it.
2: With all of the fake news coming out of NBC and the networks, at what point is it appropriate to challenge their license? Bad for country, he tweeted.
1: Then, in the Oval Office, he repeated his call. It's frankly disgusting the way the press is able to write whatever they want to write, and people should look into it. Dave Snyder is executive director of the First Amendment Coalition. He says it's highly unlikely that the president can directly carry out the tweeted threats. The entities that are licensed are individual stations,
3: so it's not as if Trump could wave a magic wand and cause NBC News to stop broadcasting. The FCC is the entity that determines licensing, and it is an independent agency. The head of the FCC is appointed by Trump, but the FCC does not do the president's
1: bidding. These aren't entirely uncharted waters. Nixon did try to use the FCC license as a weapon against the press.
3: Nixon encouraged supporters of his to bring challenges against a couple of TV stations that were owned by Newsweek and the Washington Post at that time. Those challenges were unsuccessful, but they highlight a route by which Trump's tweet could actually have some
1: substantive real effect. David, going to give you a little peek behind the OTM curtain. I saw these tweets and went nuts on the grounds of despotism, unconstitutionality, un americanness and so forth. Others in our editorial meeting said, Bob, we can't just take the bait on every outlandish Trump tweet. Wait till he actually does something. But if we pull back to the bigger picture, you do see disturbing anti-First Amendment things actually happening around the country. Can you give me some examples? The
3: instance where the congressional
1: candidate in Montana,
3: now Congressman Greg Gianforte, body slammed a reporter – That was shocking on so many levels. For anyone to attack a reporter for simply doing his job is deeply disturbing, but for an elected representative or at that time a candidate to do so was really breathtaking. Now, of course, Trump didn't order Greg Gianforte to do that, but he has said things time and again that attempt to undermine the press's credibility and mean the very purpose of the press, which is to ascertain the truth Another example is the reporter arrested in the West Virginia Capitol for too aggressively questioning Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price. The reporter was aggressive. He asked questions in the way that reporters do when they're not getting an answer, and he was arrested for that. Well, you know, these things happen sometimes, but when you look at the backdrop, of the highest elected official in the land, constantly saber-rattling and suggesting that the press is venal and dishonest. And and, an enemy
1: of the people.
3: And it comes, I, I think, straight from the authoritarian playbook to depict your adversaries as enemies, indeed, of the people of the country.
1: You talked about the independent FCC. Well, yes and no. In May, a reporter covering one of the FCC meetings, a guy from Roll Call, had the temerity to try to ask a question of public officials and, and was pushed up against a wall by a couple of
3: um, security officers in the building and then roughly escorted out of the building. There were no charges brought against the reporter, but this is yet another example, I think, of security officers and
1: public officials following the lead of the president. All right. Now, free speech is not limited to a free press. There's a case that is set to go on trial, on retrial, I guess, in November involving a woman who was arrested for laughing during the confirmation hearing for the Attorney General Jeff Sessions back in January. Senator Richard Shelby of Alabama referred to Sessions' record of, quote, Of treating all
3: Americans equally under the law is clear and well-documented.
1: I guess she found that amusing, considering Sessions' actual record. Now, originally, the judge threw this out. What's the status?
3: She was charged with two different counts. One was disorderly conduct, which I think stemmed from the snickering, And the other was something to the effect of engaging in protesting on the Capitol grounds or in the Capitol building, both of which are misdemeanors. The jury convicted her, and a judge later overturned that conviction because the prosecution improperly told the jury that she could be convicted solely for laughing. He threw out the conviction. Well, the prosecutors are bringing the case again— The fact that it was brought at all I think is unusual. Just because there is a legal basis to bring charges doesn't mean that the charges should be brought, because prosecutors are aware of the message that their prosecutions bring. And the message brought here is be very, very careful about mocking or criticizing officials in this executive branch, because we
1: will not pull punches. This executive branch. And there's something that maybe concerns you most of all, and that was the August announcement from Sessions that the Justice Department is reviewing Obama-era guidelines for when journalists can be properly subpoenaed.
3: Obama was no prince in this realm either. His administration had subpoenaed the phone records and some email records of as many as 100 Associated Press reporters and were collecting that information for weeks before the Associated Press even became aware of it. There was a pretty big outcry, and Holder sat down with media groups and reworked the Justice Department policies. So in Jeff Session's statement in August, he not only suggested that those rules will be looked at again, but that the Justice Department is going to be very aggressive about pursuing leakers.
2: Since January, the department has more than tripled the number of active leak investigations compared to the
3: number pending at the end of the last administration. Those leak investigations, if they lead to reporters, may well result in the kind of subpoenas the Obama administration engaged in and that could um, lead to the divulgement of confidential sources, which is at the core of much,
1: if not most, important investigative journalism. On that question of Trump words versus Trump deeds, while sometimes his tweets are just empty threats, there is a direct line between, for example, his rhetoric about Muslim bans and one of his first acts as president, between his promise to take care of the coal industry and this week's very actions by the EPA, and a very long list of other promises that he has kept. So there's that. Now, I'm saying it now quietly when I said it in the editorial meeting Spittle was flying from my mouth. (laughs) Is there anything you can say to calm me down? For all the examples where Trump
3: has said things that ultimately led to action, I think you can find just as many examples where Trump has said something that didn't directly lead to any action. But the words of a president of the United States have a concrete effect in the world that the words of any other person do not. Does that mean that you focus on every single outrageous tweet? I think not. But when he makes a statement that suggests a direct course of action against the press, then it's proper to be truly alarmed because you see these two wire ends connect. You see the rhetoric connecting with potential action.
1: You've been a, an articulate advocate for both sides of the panic question. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I, that's because I go through that same conversation every day in my own head, because I think both of those sides are right in a way, but both of those sides are wrong, too. <laughs> I mean, Trump divides not just parts of the electorate, but divides people between themselves you know sometimes you want to approach tweets that Trump puts out that are outrageous on their face as just Trump being Trump and nothing's going to come of it you can find plenty of examples where that approach is justified but then again on the other side of the divide you say this can't be allowed to pass this is something that just is beyond the pale and needs to be called out as such.
1: David thank you very much. Thank you. David Snyder is executive director of the First Amendment Coalition.
0: The president also took aim and some fire from the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, erstwhile pal, now sparring partner, Republican Bob Corker.
4: President Trump went on another tweet storm early this morning over outgoing Republican Senator Bob Corker. And Senator Corker responded by calling the White House, quote, an adult daycare center.
0: Corker's Trump-as-toddler metaphor has long been a media trope.
4: So far, it has been a rough start
5: to the school year for Donald Trump. His report card is definitely going to say, has problems working and playing well with others. (laughs) And there's not much we can do. do What can we do? Because the Oval Office doesn't have any corners. You can't put them
4: in a timeout.
0: Good for a chuckle until you consider the jokes on us given that the president has the nuclear codes and doesn't shrink from baiting North Korea into a potential war. Here's Vanity Fair special correspondent Gabriel Sherman speaking with Chris Hayes this week.
3: There's a conversation I had with a very prominent Republican today who literally was saying that they imagine General Kelly and Secretary Mattis have had conversations about if Trump lunged for the nuclear football, what would they do? Would they tackle him? I mean, literally physically restrain him from putting the country at perilous risk.
0: In this narrative, Chief of Staff John Kelly, Secretary of Defense James Mattis, National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson are the guardians of probity, the so-called adults in the
1: room. They have been seen as the real adults. but I think having Kelly as the Chief of Staff I, and I think it'll help reinforce the sort of adults in the room, including McMaster.
0: McMaster, Mattis, and, and Tillerson, and that those are the the grown up Axis of adults. The, right, the axis of adults, and he's not listening to them. They're- Writing in the New York Review of Books, author James Mann cautions against the media's use of the phrase adults in the room because it distracts us from asking other crucial questions about these powerful men. He also says that the phrase, as applied to Trump is a departure from its classic use in the capital. Go back
2: to the 90s. There were proposals to require improvements in China's human rights situation for China to get any renewals of its trade benefits. The supposed adults in the room were the Treasury secretaries, Robert Rubin, Lawrence Summers, who said, we shouldn't put too much emphasis on human rights that trade with China was too important. They described people who favored a strong policy on human rights with China as in need of adult supervision, like Nancy Pelosi (laughs) and George Mitchell. (laughs) Adults usually meant mainstream views or even just the people I agree with.
0: That's the old standard. Now, you write, it isn't about politics, but about temperament. And the adults are the men attempting to rein in President Trump.
2: That's right. Emotionally mature people.
0: There were reports that at least in the first few weeks of the Trump administration, Madison Kelly agreed that one or the other should be in the country at all times.
2: I've seen reports of that over and over again. The most important example where the adults did get together, really, was late last spring when Trump was about to make his first trip to Europe. And the cabinet officials helped put together a speech in which Trump would reaffirm America's long-standing commitment to the collective defense of Europe, the collective defense of NATO. Trump just plain didn't do it. It took a while for the so-called adults to insist that this was something that the Trump administration really needed to do.
0: And at one point during an overseas trip, Mattis recalled a quote he inaccurately attributed to Winston Churchill, I think it was, Abba Eban, who said it many years ago.
4: To quote a uh, British observer of us from some years ago, bear with us, uh, once we've exhausted all possible alternatives, the Americans will do the right thing.
2: That's an important quote. And there's another instance a couple months later where Mattis is out in front of a group of American soldiers. He's actually on the ground in Jordan.
4: You just hold the line until our country gets back to understanding and respecting each other and showing it, yeah. of being
1: friendly to one another.
2: There's an implicit message that this country existed before Trump and it will exist after Trump and in between the job of the military, but implicitly of the country is to somehow hold the line. Now, let's
0: talk about these adults, because this is why we called you. The word implies that these men are measured and well prepared for their roles, at least compared to Trump. But you suggest that the honorific seems to have protected them from proper media scrutiny.
2: We tend to be so absorbed on the adults deflecting some of what Trump does, that we pay less attention to what they actually believe. Tillerson has supportive views of Russia. He had close ties to Putin. He really is not someone that you would want in a job where you would want someone with considerable skepticism about Russia and its foreign policy. He has, over the last eight or nine months, done more to carry out Bannon's agenda of cutting back on the administrative state than anyone else. He has allowed the State Department to have its budget cut and be decimated in personnel. So what about the other three? These guys were war fighters in Iraq and Afghanistan. They place importance, understandably, on winning the wars in which they fought. Mattis is Secretary of Defense, McMaster, as national security advisor, pushed Trump a little bit to increase the number of troops in Afghanistan. I think that's an outgrowth of their own experiences. What they lack is experience in dealing with China. Actually, none of them has much experience in dealing with Russia either.
0: Or North Korea. And in fact, most of the old North Korea hands are gone and those positions have not been filled. Throughout most of our history, there's
2: been a concern to preserve civilian control of the military. The underlying assumption is that civilians would have a more balanced view. What's extraordinary about the Trump administration is that three of the top jobs involved in foreign policy are military officers. In the case of Mattis, he's the first guy from the military to serve as Secretary of Defense since George Marshall. (laughs) So we're going back seven decades the problem isn't one that the U.S. will be more militaristic in its policies. Over the years, it's military people who favor diplomacy, while too many diplomats favor military action. The, the war in Vietnam, the invasion of Iraq by the George W. Bush administration, the intervention in Libya by the Obama administration. In all of those, it's been civilians, not military people, leading the way. So I think that is probably a stereotype that doesn't match the facts. However, if we somehow assume that because people wear a uniform, they're wiser, more disciplined than civilians, then I think we're going to get into problems with the civilian society that we've developed over a couple hundred years.
0: You worry that ultimately the adults in the room metaphor could have a pernicious effect on the public mind.
2: We need to be able to assume that civilians are the adults. To have military leaders both be in charge of conducting wars and defending the country and also making the larger decisions about how we use our resources, what's most important for our country, gives a role for the military that is greater than we want and I think greater than the military wants. We choose our political leaders I think it's not enough to simply say, we elect a president, and then he gets to appoint the military to the leading positions. It's civilian leaders, ultimately, who have to answer to the American public.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you, Brooke. James Mann is a fellow in residence at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies and the author of Rise of the Vulcans, The History of Bush's War Cabinet.
1: Coming up, reporting the ongoing crisis in Puerto Rico calls for persistence and outrage. This is On the Media.
0: This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone.
1: And I'm Bob Garfield. The president didn't limit his tweets this week to threatening the free press. He also took a moment to threaten ongoing federal aid to hurricane-ravaged Puerto Rico. The president says we cannot keep FEMA, the military, and the first responders who've been amazing under the most difficult circumstances, in PR, forever. According to the New York Times, it's typical for FEMA and other agencies to help on the ground for years after a disaster of this scale. But in week four of the devastation in Puerto Rico, the president is already talking about withdrawing aid. Meanwhile, on the island, the emergency seems to be escalating. Residents struggle to find clean water amid fears that floodwater is
4: spreading disease. 61-year-old Jorge Sanyet Morales is believed to have died from leptospirosis.
5: <laughs>
4: it's a bacterial infection spread by contaminated water. It should have been easily treatable with antibiotics.
1: That was David Begno of CBS, who was in Puerto Rico before Hurricane Maria hit on September 20th, and then reported for two weeks straight, doing dispatches for the network and posting videos on Twitter.
4: Well, let's start with this. A majority of the island, roughly 90%, doesn't have power the U.S. government, with the help of FEMA, was working to restore as much of the power grid as they could as quickly as possible. A thunderstorm rolled through about 72 hours ago and wiped out the progress that was made. That's how delicate and dilapidated this infrastructure is.
1: We spoke to him on Tuesday after he'd returned to the island following just a few days on the mainland.
4: There's a feeling that things are more desperate today than when we left five days ago. Okay, you're talking about a governor who has told congressional leaders that they could be on the brink of an economic collapse. Damage estimates are one estimate is upwards of 90 billion dollars. The governor is asking for four point six right away. There are three hundred and fifty thousand people living in the capital of San Juan. The mayor says half of them need food and water, not for a day, not for two, but for the foreseeable future.
1: Uh, You're not new to the disaster beat. You've said this is the first you've covered where the emergency is so endless. Is it because the storm was so bad, because the island was so ill-prepared and fragile to begin with, because the response from the federal government and the military has been lacking, which? When
4: I was in Houston for Hurricane Harvey, Civilian Samaritans from Louisiana and Austin and North Texas and Arkansas and Mississippi and North Louisiana drove in immediately. And what I saw was the civilian Samaritans who were doing as good a job as the federal government, if not better. Now, it's been 20 days. People have arrived saying, hey, I heard what was needed, so I booked a ticket and I came from California or Odessa, Texas or Baltimore or New Jersey or New York. But I just spoke with a woman whose husband is a veteran. He's on the western part of the island with 11 other veterans, and they put out something of an SOS. They said, we have run into Red tape. We need supplies to hand out, but we can't find the help. And when you talk to FEMA, they tell you we're doing our best, and they seem to have the best intentions. But there are 16,000 of them. There were more than 30,000 in Houston for Harvey. Why can't they get more? That's not a question I'm asking. It's a question that people on the ground here are
1: asking. The administration has painted Carmen Yulín Cruz, the mayor of San Juan, as kind of politically motivated nag. FEMA's director, Brock Long, said, just Sunday on the morning public affairs shows.
3: We filtered out the mayor a long time ago. We don't have time for the political noise.
4: The bottom line is, is that um, we
3: are making progress.
4: I'll tell you, I went to her last night and I said, what's your response? And she said, you can filter me out all you want, but I'm not going to start saying what they want me to say.
0: I'm not going to play nice because I'm a woman and I'm supposed to play nice because we're here in the fight for our life. You see what the subtext of that is? If you don't criticize, then you'll get help. So does that mean that the only ones that are getting help are the ones that are shutting up?
4: She has seemingly been undistracted She seems very focused, and most of the help and resources, according to the mayor, that she feels satisfied with are coming from non-governmental organizations and the private sector. Look, a lot has been made about the politics, right? The president calling out the mayor of San Juan, the governor and the mayor of San Juan having a back and forth. Let me say this. According to our reporting, nobody's talking about politics
1: you have become a de facto fixer when you talk to the governor about supplies at the airport the governor makes things happen we just left 15 minutes ago and there are people who have not had a sip of water in 36 hours i
5: understand and
1: that's why uh, immediately i'm taking action and i will as soon as we finish the interview make sure that uh, they're on their way the mayor of san juan herself has tweeted for you to intervene with FEMA. And it's almost awkward.
4: I mean, I woke up Sunday morning and the mayor had put out this desperate tweet and she tagged me in it. And then all of a sudden on Twitter, you have hundreds, if not thousands, of people that are reaching out saying, Did you see it? What can you do? It was another important reason why we had to be here. Because in this day and age of that term fake news, as the president calls it, the best of journalism is making things happen here. The lack of communication here on the island is unprecedented from what I've ever experienced on a national disaster. I get thousands of messages a day from people who are desperate for information. People are craving direct access, and we are doing everything we can to get it, and for whatever reason, it seems to be working.
1: David, much of your reporting, probably most of it, has not been on CBS's air, but on Twitter, where you were publishing, you know, full video reports, including your big scoop about aid shipments being just stranded at the airport. We're at the port here in San Juan, and we wanted to see where's the food, the supplies,
4: everything that's needed. We got here, and here's what we were told. There are more than 3,000 shipping containers here at the port, which are just sitting here. It's got everything they need, but nobody's showing up. The governor of Puerto Rico says they're having trouble reaching the truck drivers.
1: First of all, let me ask you about those. Is there evidence that they have finally begun to get distributed to the 70-plus municipalities on the island where they're needed?
4: Yes. There are more truck drivers arriving to deliver the aid. And let's remember, those shipping containers that we found at the port that were so maddening to see sitting there— Those were meant for grocery stores, right, for local businesses who needed to have them delivered and weren't getting them. FEMA, to FEMA's credit, went in and started buying it up and saying, listen, we can't wait. We'll buy those supplies and we'll ship them out. But as much as we talk about the progress being made, Bob. All I keep hearing from people is it's not happening fast enough. This is coming from mayors, police officers, people on the ground. I talked to a priest last night who's in an area 30 minutes outside San Juan who says depression is starting to set in among the desperate people.
1: Uh, One of the jobs of a reporter in your position is to find out what is true, also to find out what is not true, but which has found its way to the rumor mill. You've spent some time debunking false rumors. Can you tell me why it matters to do that as much as it matters to say what is going on?
4: Rumor on this island has stoked fear and paralyzed progress. I'll give you an example. We kept getting all these harrowing reports of bodies floating in caskets on Earth in lodes. And so we sent a producer, a camera crew, and they came back, come to find out there were no bodies floating, there were no caskets unearthed. And there was a police officer actually at this graveyard where apparently this horrific scene was, turning people away saying, hey, listen, there's nothing to see here. So not satisfied, I went to the man who's the head of public safety for the island. And he said, listen, uh, we, we have to clear this up. He was He was almost angry that we were asking. And so I said, stand right here. And I got my phone and we shot a 10 minute video. And the next day he came to me and he said, you don't know how much that video helped to clear up some of the confusion and quell all these rumors that were going around. Since then, there've been endless rumors about the spread of third world diseases and and all this kind of stuff. And so in this emergency situation where people are trying to get the basic necessities, and I'm trying to find out why the government in combination with the federal government seems to be unable to adequately meet those needs. In the middle of that, you're also trying to run down and fact check all these other different angles.
1: You've talked about Samaritans. You may be Samaritan number 1 because of the stories you've broken, you have come to be regarded you know as something of a saint in New York. There there are even candles with decals of you, you know, in full saint regalia. This is an unusual position for a reporter. How do you deal with that?
4: It's a bit uncomfortable. This is not about me. But I will say this.
1: I have,
4: in my career, not experienced one story that felt so effective in terms of the job that journalism can do, right? Bob, I I just came here because it was another hurricane and that was my assignment. But what has happened is the best of what journalism can do. And that is highlight injustices. And hold people accountable. I'm not doing anything that another journalist couldn't do. There's nothing special about me or what I'm doing, but I'm doing it relentlessly, consistently, doggedly, and we don't plan to stop.
1: David, thank you very much. Thank you, Bob. David Begno is a news correspondent for CBS.
2: Coming up,
0: did you hear? The Harvey Weinstein scandal first emerged as whispers in the gossip blogs.
1: This is on the media. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield.
0: And I'm Brooke Gladstone. Last week, the New York Times published an explosive story detailing allegations against one of Hollywood's most Oscar-encrusted heavyweights, studio chief, now ex-studio chief, Harvey Weinstein. This week, a New Yorker expose by Ronan Farrow, which NBC declined to run, revealed yet more victims and even worse behavior, including accusations of rape. Weinstein denies these claims, but the procession of women coming forward with their own tales of sexual harassment and intimidation continues apace. For some outside Hollywood, these revelations came as a shock, but within the industry, Weinstein's behavior has long been an open secret. Take Seth MacFarlane's quip, at an Oscar nomination ceremony in 2013.
3: Congratulations, you five
1: ladies no longer have to pretend to be attracted to Harvey Weinstein.
0: <laughs> or this in the no joke on 30 Rock in 2012. I'm not afraid of anyone in show business. I turned down intercourse with Harvey Weinstein on no less than three occasions. BuzzFeed senior culture writer Anne Helen Peterson says that denizens of Tinseltown were apprised of his depredations, thanks in part to an oft-maligned news source, gossip blogs.
6: Yeah, that's how women outside of Hollywood especially learned this information. I've heard people tell me that they first heard the rumors when they were frequenting Usenet discussion boards in the late 90s before the internet had taken the form that we now recognize it. And that was at the apex of Weinstein's power. Yes, absolutely. And then some of them were really percolating around the height of gossip blogs, which was, I would date it to 2005 to 2008. Things called The
0: Defamer and Oh No They Didn't, and Celebitchy, and Pop Bitch, and Fame Tracker, <laughs> and Laney Gossip, and an infamous one titled Casting
6: Couch. The rise of digital photography and blogging technologies made these blogs very popular, you know, especially as an alternative voice to the mainstream gossip publications like People Magazine and Us Magazine.
0: Now, gossip is derided as a lesser media form. It's prying, it's prurient, and it's inconsequential. But you wrote that much of what it imparts is the means of survival, especially for women. And you wrote in BuzzFeed, it's no wonder so many men deride and degrade gossip, It's our most effective armor against their abuses. The
6: way that gossip between people worked in Hollywood, and then the way that celebrity gossip and consuming this information reinforces this idea that there are men out there who women should be wary of, and that we rely on each other to inform ourselves. And so the weapons or the shields that women can use to protect
0: themselves are buried within the little items in the
6: gossip columns. Absolutely. And I want to be careful here because I think there's a tendency to look at this argument and say, well, are you saying that all gossip is feminist or progressive? And absolutely not. You know, Harvey Weinstein himself utilized gossip columns to plant counter items that would discredit people accusing him or trying to, you know, suggest that this was the sort of behavior that he engaged in.
0: We know that he used page six to control starlets who dared to report on him. One of them is Ambra Batiana Gutierrez. She's the model who had the audio tapes. I'm telling you right now. What
1: here. do we have to do here?
5: Nothing. I'm going to take a shower. You sit there and have a drink. Water, don't
0: drink. Uh, and can I stay door. on the bar? No, you must come here now. He placed defamatory stories about her on page six to discredit her, and there's also a quid pro quo, right? Tina Brown wrote Mm -hmm. about that at Talk Magazine. I'll give you
6: this gossip if you'll squash that story, that kind of thing. Yeah, and that's an old, old Hollywood scandal technique of, you know, you have this bit of information on me that could be inflammatory. I'll trade you some other piece of gossip that I have. Harvey Weinstein has prided himself on being an old-school Hollywood producer exec type And even in his apology after the initial story in the New York Times, he said, like, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. This is the way of doing things, which, yeah, sure, that doesn't mean it's okay. So if he's old school, the school that he's
0: part of changed substantially since the Internet. But tell me how easy it used to be to control the gossip.
6: During classic Hollywood, you had these long-term contracts and – the stars agreed to have every part of their image legislated, controlled by the studios. So if there was something that you did in public that was not okay by normal standards, then the studio would have one of their fixers go and clean it up, or maybe they would leak a little bit of that information as a way of being like, look, this is what will happen if you continue this behavior. You don't want to do that. You've written about one famous example, right? Henry Wilson. So, Henry Wilson was a producer in the 1950s who really recruited a certain type of male star who was robust and strapping and handsome and oftentimes gay. He would make a very heterosexual image for that star, give them a new name. So Rock Hudson is the most famous example. There was a scandal publication at the time in the 1950s called Confidential Magazine. Isn't that
0: the publication that Danny DeVito worked for in L.A. Confidential?
4: It's circulation 36,000 and climate. There's no telling where this is going to go. Radio, television. Once you whet the public's appetite for the truth, the sky's the limit.
6: Yeah, it's based on that. They had the information that Rock Hudson was gay. And Henry Wilson, Rock Hudson's agent and manager, traded gossip that another one of the stars in this stable of stars was a juvenile delinquent. So this juvenile delinquent shows up on the cover of the magazine, whereas Rock Hudson's secret stays safe.
0: But it's a lot harder to exert that kind of influence today because the Internet has— decentralized the whole gossip
6: racket. The history of Hollywood gossip is a history of who has control. And that happened with Confidential Magazine in the 1950s, and it's no accident that that corresponded with the decline of the studio and star system Mm. that had previously essentially dictated to the fan magazines, print this story and this story, and this is what this person's image is going to be. That declined when the Scandal magazine came in and said, no, we're going to tell you the truth about these stars, this darker, more salacious, seedier side. And then that was recovered over the course of the 60s, 70s, 80s. If you look at fan magazines in the 1980s, they are very much towing the publicist line. That's how Tom Cruise managed to have such an immaculate image for so Mm -hmm. long. It was People, Us Weekly, Entertainment Tonight. It was...
0: Fairly tidy, right? And then in the mid-2000s, yes. you had individual blogs, people like
6: Perez Hilton. Yeah, who came in and said, like, well, I'm going to be friends with the stars. I have a digital camera. I can take pictures when I go and hang out with them. The proliferation of paparazzos and the start of TMZ and streaming paparazzi video, all of that contributed to that. And that, again— Rested control of the narrative away from the publicists and the stars. You know, you could argue that celebrity gossip, its obsessions and
0: the revelations, holds up a mirror to the culture's
6: id, so to speak. Oh, yes, yeah. totally. <laughs> yeah. The real through line is women's sexuality and anxiety over it. In the 1920s and 1930s, a lot of the gossip was about who's doing drugs, are women having too much sex? In the 1950s, it was are women having too much sex and are people having sex with people who are a different race? Today, though, it's which guys are abusing their power. Like, that, that's a real difference. Yeah. I know, that's heartening. I think that we still have anxiety over, you know, women's sexuality. But if now the new truth that people are seeking is which men are abusive— That is a real change from the past. But despite the alarm bells of the whispering networks and the gossip, ultimately it took investigative journalism to take him down. Yeah, people on Twitter were saying, well, if you guys knew this, why didn't you do it? If anyone's been observing journalism for the last two years and knows what happened to Gawker, which was a place where many of these items circulated, you need to have a legal department that is willing to take the risk to stand up to these sorts of threats of litigation. Harvey Weinstein, you know, immediately threatened to sue the New York Times. And I don't think that anything's going to become of that. But you do need to have people at the top of your publication who are willing to move forward with something that will be risky. And do you think we're in a climate where that's more likely to happen than in the past? NBC dumped Ronan Farrow's reporting, And the reasons for that, as they've articulated, are that the reporting wasn't there. And Farrow has said the reporting was there. We're going to have some publications that are very wary of this sort of story. And then others that are defining their reputation on their willingness to take these risks.
0: Anne, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Anne Helen Peterson is a senior culture writer for BuzzFeed News the gossip journalist must also walk a fine line, teetering between what is urgent, what is merely irresistibly juicy, what is legally dubious, and what is all of the above. And perhaps no one knew it better than the infamous gossip columnist turned political commentator Walter Winchell, who began his career in 1920 covering vaudeville and wound up reaching tens of millions of people on air and in print at his peak spouting politics and
7: pulverizing personal foes. Attention Miami Herald. Van Johnson, the moving picture star after a two-day visit to New Orleans, will arrive in Miami, Florida, Tuesday next. An actress named Jacqueline Dahlia is flying from New York City to visit the star in Florida. She is due there tomorrow. One and one make three. Winchell served up gossip at a
0: breathtaking pace, a ruthless force of nature so notorious that Hollywood started taking inspiration from him in such films as 1957's The Sweet Smell of Success.
5: A columnist can't do without us, except our good and great friend J.J. forgets to mention that. You see, we furnish him with items. What, some cheap, gruesome gags? You print them, don't you?
4: Yes, with your client's names attached. That's the only reason the poor slobs pay you, to see their names in my column all over the world. Now I make it out you're doing me a favor? I didn't say The it. day I can't get along without a press agent's handouts, I'll close
7: up shop and move to Alaska lock, stock, and barrel.
0: I spoke to journalist Neil Gabler, author of Winchell, Gossip, Power, and the Culture of Celebrity, back in 2006. He said that while Winchell fed his audience unrelenting dish, he did so with a unique sense of principle unlike some practitioners in his field. Back in 1925, a fellow by the name of
5: Stephen Clough ran a newspaper he called Broadway Brevities. He operated on the principle that if you paid him or took out an advertisement, he would not write derogatory information about you. (laughs) Now, that went on for several years until finally someone blew the whistle on him, someone who was tired of being extorted in this fashion, and Clough and three associates were actually brought to trial... And Clow was sentenced to six years in federal prison. He wasn't sentenced for blackmail because none of the people about whom he had talked wanted to go into court and have to fend off the charges. And that way they'd almost be giving credence to the charges. So instead of doing that, they tried him for conspiracy to defraud people through the mail.
0: Now, this was a pretty high-profile arrest and conviction, but you say that it didn't slow down the march of gossip at all.
5: Oh, no. If anything, it seemed to accelerate it. Let's face it, there's an enormous taste for gossip. Walter Winchell was really the first to institutionalize that in the gossip column back in the mid-1920s, roughly at the same time that Broadway Brevities was being published. Gossip happened to fit a national temper and a national mood. The 1920s were full of arguments over democracy and what democracy meant. And if you look at gossip and if you really examine the subtext of gossip, gossip is about – democratization. It's about egalitarianism. It's a form of empowerment for the outsiders. Walter Winchell identified himself very, very closely with his readers. He did not identify himself with the people about whom he gossiped. And in fact, the readers felt that Winchell was kind of their tribune. He was their scourge against the powerful
0: and he's responsible for pushing gossip, which was uh, once the province of specialty magazines, into the mainstream media.
5: Yes, he did, because he understood what gossip was about. Now, a lot of people don't realize that Walter Winchell gained an enormous amount of popularity in the 1930s by allying himself with Franklin Roosevelt and essentially becoming a political commentator. So that if you read Winchell's column... Or if you listen to Winchell's radio broadcast, which was, by the way, the number one rated informational broadcast on radio, you would hear him gossip about somebody's divorce or romance or whatever with one item. And the very next
7: item would be about Franklin Roosevelt or Adolf Hitler. Alexandria, it will be denied, it always is, but the evidence is mounting that the Kremlin and the Muslim leaders are working out a grand alliance. If this is true, then it would mean that so far as Joe Stalin is concerned... So long, bye-bye and ta-ta to a free Palestine. Bahrain, Arabia. Arabian oil production is expected to reach an all-time high. And in power politics, an oil field is what a waterhole is in a jungle or a desert. Look for plenty of trouble then, east of Suez and west of Bombay, and tell Mr. Molotov that he can't stop Winchell from reporting in advance what some diplomats are trying to scoop me on, a third world war.
5: Now, Winchell thought of himself as a journalist, but readers didn't think of him as a journalist.
0: Did they not think of him as a journalist because he didn't actually practice journalism? I mean, did he employ the sorts of rules, the sourcing that we expect and trust in journalism? There was some reporting. I mean,
5: he did things that most gossip columnists today did not do. For example, he covered the war and got inside information from the Roosevelt administration about war planning. He was very close to J. Edgar Hoover, so he got a lot of items from the FBI, although truth be told, he gave more items to the FBI than he got from the FBI. But because there was this kind of transaction between Winchell and and government, there was a certain degree of sourcing that even so-called reputable reporters didn't have access to.
0: Because he had changed the balance of power uh, among the famous He was more powerful than they were. He needed them, but they needed him even more.
5: What you've described was unquestionably true. But that balance of power has changed over the last, I would say, you know, 30 years or so. The media once held the power. You needed the media. Now the celebrity has the power. That changes the relationship of the gossip columnist to his subject. And frankly, it changes the relationship of the reader to the gossip column. And and it's one of the reasons, among many others, that the gossip column doesn't have the same kind of clout because people reading the gossip column now are seeing the gossip columnist as a tribune from the powerful to them.
0: So what ultimately brought Winchell's career to an end when he became less the FDR Democrat and more the uh, McCarthyite acolyte? Well, that
5: happened, although he saw it as another seamless transition, because as he saw it, he was against the elites. FDR was, and so was Joseph McCarthy. If there was any incident, it was when the singer Josephine Baker, black singer, felt she was being stiffed at the store club, which was Winchell's hangout. And Winchell ultimately came to the defense of the store club, not to the defense of Josephine Baker. And since Winchell had always been identified with minorities, with the disenfranchised, with the poor, this began a salient for opponents of Walter Winchell to attack him. And indeed, the New York Post ran a long series of articles attacking Walter Winchell, and that certainly hurt him.
0: We stopped liking him. We could stop forgiving him for entertaining us so well. That's absolutely true. All right, Neil, thank you very much. Thank you. Neil Gabler is a journalist, historian, and film critic. We spoke to him in 2006.
1: That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Michael Lowinger, and Leia Feder. We had more help from Monique Laborde, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo.
0: Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. One last note about garbled gossip before we go. Two weeks back, on the passing of Hugh Hefner, I said that Marilyn Monroe was already dead when he used her as Playboy's first cover girl in 1963. But that happened in 53, not 63. Hence, she was very much alive. Hefner bought the nude photos she'd taken when she was broke and desperate from the man who shot them. But over time, reportedly... She and Hef became chums. That said,
1: I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield.
6: On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.